Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to another edition of New Books in Systems and Cybernetics, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Tom Schult from the University of British Columbia. The work of polymath Gregory Bateson has long been the road to cybernetics, traveled by those approaching this transdisciplinary field from the direction of the social sciences and even the humanities. Fortunately for devotees of Bateson's expansive vision, Peter Harry's Jones has continued the expert analysis that gave us 1995's A Recursive Vision, Ecological Understanding, and Gregory Bateson with his 2016 offering, Upside Down Gods, Gregory Bateson's World of Difference, out from Fordham University Press. Harry's Jones has clearly thought deeply about the totality of Bateson's corpus while drawing upon a wide variety of sources, including personal correspondence. The result is an illuminating study that, amongst other accomplishments, productively positions Bateson's work as a foundation of today's burgeoning field of biosemiotics. In our wide-ranging conversation, Harry's Jones warns us of the perils of a strictly algorithmic world without mind, details Bateson's intellectual tussle with Bertrand Russell's theory of logical types, and amplifies Bateson's bold challenges to the social sciences to let go of the centrality of power and control and replace them with an appreciation of aesthetics and form, to heal the epistemic cut between the human and the animal, and even dare to recuperate selected elements of the thought of Jean-Baptiste Lamarck in a challenge to Darwinian orthodoxy. All of this makes for a conversation that is as incisive and articulate as his highly readable monograph, asking us to carefully consider the intellectual and ecological benefits of Bateson's upside-down ontology, with mind as foundation rather than emergent phenomenon. And so, without any further ado, let's turn to my conversation with Peter Harris-Jones. Peter Harris-Jones, welcome to New Books in Systems and Cybernetics. It's a great pleasure to have you here. First of all, let me thank you for writing such a rich and engaging book that really does uh, amazing work uh, bridging uh, the work of Gregory Bateson and his legacy to a very contemporary uh, work going on in biosemiotics and and uh, other related fields. And thank you so much for making time to uh, join me today. Well, it's a great pleasure to be here. And um, I am, of course, delighted to have somebody uh, interview me on the contents of a book. That is a, a rare occasion indeed. And I'm going to enjoy this. Thank you so much, Tom. Excellent. My pleasure. So uh, we'll start with our traditional question, which is, uh, can you tell us a little bit about your academic intellectual background, your trajectory that eventually led you to an engagement uh, with the work of Bateson in particular and the sort of field of cybernetics and related areas uh, in general? Yes. Well, I am professionally an anthropologist. And of course, Bateson was a well-known anthropologist, uh, particularly in North America and even more so in California. Uh, where he uh, lived for uh, much of his life uh, while he was living in the United States because he was married to Margaret Mead, who was probably uh, in her lifetime the best-known, certainly the best-known female anthropologist. Uh, I had then a professional interest and also a student interest to begin with 
in learning the, the great names, as it were, in social anthropology at the time, and uh, Bateson was one of them. Uh, from there, uh, it has been a sort of a devious encounter with uh, Bateson, um, and uh, even more uh, devious encounter through uh, cybernetics, because I'm not trained at all uh, in mathematics. And though I am or was in those days an avid reader of science fiction, to me, this was uh, an outside world in which I had no engagement in. But if we take up uh, the question of um, the anthropological connection, uh, in my uh, research work, when I was uh, doing my doctorate uh, at Oxford University, uh, I got involved uh, with research in, in the urban townships of Zambia. And uh, at the time, the little group, so-called the Manchester Group or the Manchester School of Anthropologists, was uh, realizing that, you, that the whole question of the normative and the change in the rapid change from uh, an, an rural population to an urban population uh, could not really be um, could not really be written up in terms of norms norms was uh, okay in the stable population over uh, several generations but when everything was so changeable uh, the idea of changing norms needed to be explored through new methodology and it had to account for a many uh, many people, many perspectives, a variety. So, believe it or not, they began investigating with social networks. So, I was, in fact, this team that uh, I was with, the Manchester School, were the introducers of the notion of social networks into anthropology. And this is pretty early on. We're going back now to uh, the early 1960s, although the book on social networks was not published until uh, 1969, and uh, then became a sort of semi-classic, which was still on the uh, Harvard University reading lists about network analysis, just before the time, or really at the time, uh, that Facebook got going, and then of course it was completely replaced. Now the reason it was completely replaced was because of an objection that I made right at the beginning. We were doing social networks with a, a quasi-graphic, actually it's called a directed graph, a quasi-graphic association between people, which was a system of nodes and arrows, and then quantitatively examining uh, certain uh, facets of this, like uh, density or my particular case my particular case reachability connectivity all types of connectivity from that one person person a to person b but i made the case right after we had sort of developed this that this was not good enough we really needed an interactive dyadic uh, social network and my supervisor more or less said, well, we've got the book now. Uh, 
I see your point. I'm not going there. We're publishing the book as a per notion of a personal network, and we will not go by, not go into the dyadic, uh, interactive, reflective aspects of this uh, in this particular book. So that's what happened. But I was looking then for uh, a way into um, discussing the uh, interactive, reflective aspects. And this is, and I looked at the world of communication, and I couldn't find uh, anything that really satisfied me, except perhaps a little bit of Gregory Bateson. Well, then, by good fortune, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, I think it was 72, in 1972, um, wanted to do a series on a program that they called Ideas, that uh, was a program designed to introduce large topics um, in a series, and at the end of the series, a book to be published on the uh, topic. Uh, and the idea series that year was on to be on cybernetics, and they invited a well-known cybernetician called Stafford Beer to be the central focus, and then they picked up other cybernetics people to have a discussion about Beer's new book at the time called Designing Freedom. And I got myself on the committee, and I then suggested, well, why not Gregory Bateson? So, yes, it was 1972, because he had just published an ecology, uh, Steps to an Ecology of Mind. And uh, they did invite him to attend, but he said he had so many invitations at the time, he couldn't come. But uh, the interviewer, the person running the program, said, right, do you mind if I go down and uh, do the interviews with you instead of you coming to us? So he went down and he spent four days with Bateson. Uh, I've still got those tapes that he spent four days with, and they are exceedingly rich. And then I was asked to do a book on the conference, and quite frankly, I couldn't. I, I mean, I just didn't know enough of the technical aspects of cybernetics to match it with the communicational aspects in, in the literature to do a good piece of work. So it, it was my failure that that year, there, although there were the Stafford Beers lectures published um, as part of the Massey Lectures series, uh, this complimentary book didn't get out. However, I began to pursue my understanding of uh, Bateson at that particular point. Thank you. Well, wow, I would... I mean, the things I would give to be able to listen to those four days of tapes with uh, Gregory Bateson, I can only imagine uh, how rich they are. Um, so um, this, the title of your book, Upside Down Gods, um, Gregory Bateson's World of Difference. Um, can you tell us a little bit about why you chose that title? Yes, I chose that title because, first of all, there are two quotes at the beginning who say that the, uh, and the two quotes 
are on different themes. I put them right at the beginning of the book. One is about information theory, and he says the the notion, the standard notions of uh, information theory uh, need to be uh, thoroughly revised and, and looked at, um, at the with the perspective of meaning, uh, because there was no meaning in information theory. Information theory presented a technical view of the world and an algorithmic expression of the technical view. Uh, I didn't know that at that particular time that we, we would be flooded with this, not as a matter of academic interest, but as a discourse that has really hit upon our world. And all of a sudden, there is, as everybody knows, a great problem with this type of um, algorithmic uh, gathering of data and the way that it is expressed. And that uh, the world of meaning then becomes very, very forcibly uh, an opposite avenue, an opposite entry into another set of in inquiries, much more sophisticated than the algorithmic inquiries in which we establish a relationship to our world, ecology, to people. I mean, it's the algorithmic presents us with the, ins with the very weird set of propositions of putting a three-year-old on a no-flight program because their name came up as a potential terrorist. Well, you know, it's, it's, it, it may be good for some sets of information, but for other sets of information, the miscommunication is an injury to society as a whole. In the world of developing um, uh, a meaning in relationship to, uh, to um, our, our understanding of communication, uh, sure, we're going to have or we're going to produce uh, uh, as scientists some form of misrepresentations and perhaps some form of error. But I don't think the sort of errors that we are going to produce are as catastrophic as I think the algorithmic errors that, that we are now capable of doing it. And, okay, and the, the algorithmic errors is not only about who goes out with whom and who sleeps with whom and who's in a political party uh, that is not popular at the time or is viewed as a threat to society. No, the algorithmic error is particularly acute in the world of biology as biology comes to understand genetics, but might proceed to investigate genetics through an algorithmic perspective rather than through the perspective of meaning. So that's one way that, uh, and I have a chapter on biosemiotics uh, that uh, approaches that uh, because uh, the idea of biosemiotics has a little slogan um, which says uh, something to the effect that life is semiotics and semiotics is life. The sign and the sign interrelationship is the way that life continues life. And that is the fundamental uh, unit 
or what Bateson called the organism plus environment. That is the fundamental unit towards which we must be working. Perhaps we can come back to that uh, a little later. So that's one upside down. And then the other upside down is the discussion of evolution. Uh, Bateson was involved in, ev uh, in evolution studies, even though you, you, you do not see him as a normal person quoted in the evolutionary discourse. But you do see his father quoted, W. Bateson, extensively. Why? Because he was the very, he gave the world the term genetics, and he gave the world term homozygous and heterozygous. He was the person who took up uh, the manuscript, um, not of uh, a Darwinian nature, but of uh, the, the manuscript uh, that uh, promoted a view of life uh, based on a conception of difference, which he then elaborated, uh, from the German Mendel, Gregor Mendel. In fact, Gregory Bateson, the Gregory came from his father giving him, giving him the name uh, Gregory in honor of Mendel. So Bateson, W. Bateson was the first Mendelian. And though Mendel and Darwin were seen to be united uh, by a massive sort of intellectual pro uh, a project uh, from the 1930s onwards, uh, that, that uh, supposed modern synthesis really has fallen apart uh, since then, particularly since the Human Genome Project, which showed that what they thought in the early modern, early, uh, modern synthesis, uh, notion of the modern synthesis, that uh, genes had a one-to-one -one relationship with proteins and protein formation was completely taken away when they discovered that uh, the human being had only about 25,000 genes, uh, which, and so did the average cockroach. Well, you couldn't pursue, uh, that. <laughs> you couldn't pursue a science on that uh, basis uh, at all. So science has undergone a radical revision of its ideas. And as it's undergone a radical re revision of its ideas, the work of W. Bateson, i.e. Bateson's father, has come back into focus again. For example, he always insisted, and science didn't recognize, biological science didn't recognize it at the time, he always insisted uh, that um, the chromosome was, as it were, a context-making order for uh, the genome, but nobody nobody would accept that back in the 1930s. Now, it's standard practice to begin an article with this way in, and investigating it. So the um, part here in, in uh, Bateson's um, argument is mm -hmm. that uh, mind or sensitivity uh, or context, particularly context, the notion of context, and how context is developed is at the very base of mental existence. And not only this, 
but you can find this right at the base of our biological world. It's not something that um, is only significant with respect to humanity, but is uh, completely at the very bottom of existence and where you begin. Now, what's down about this? Upside down about this is that human beings regard mind at the top mm -hmm. of everything. With humanity, you know, one step from the angels through having these great accomplishments of mentation and then the angels one step away from uh, God. They are God's messengers. So they have all this upwards ladder from uh, the bottom, which is robotic animal interaction to the top, which is this uh, supreme being. So it is a complete reversal when you say, no, 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 no. Mind is at uh, the bottom. This is where you must look for the godlike properties and sign mediated interaction. And uh, the other thing is, uh, is uh, information theory of the time. And this is the algorithmic problem. This is world without mind, as Franklin Fourer. Uh, with his latest book, he entitles this world without mind. Uh, yes, it does provide a, a way into understanding the difference between noise and a signal. It does understand, it does uh, tell you something about the nature of uh, the messenger, the message and the receiver. But it doesn't really go beyond that to describe what the meaning, what the uh, sign mediated meaning of the message is, nor does it tell you anything about context. And Bateson tried to turn this around and say, no, it is the sign mediated context. It is the message in the context that is at the heart of our discussion. And uh, the fact that we can use technology to repeat this quite remarkably uh, all the way around the world is, if you like, meta too, um, not, not in the constraining sense, but um, is uh, meta to uh, the fundamental issue, which is uh, this understanding of sign-mediated interaction. Yes, and you've raised a number of, of key words that I, I'd like us to come back to. Um, this book does uh, so much work in, in, as I said, connecting us to a field you've already mentioned, biosemiotics, and I do want us to spend a, a substantial portion of, of, of our time on that. You've introduced the notion of, of context and, and this, the turning of information theory upside down. Um, I believe Bateson was saying something about changing the relationship of what mathematical Shannon information theory calls redundancy, and instead he wants to call pattern. And so I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about pattern, a little bit more about Bateson's notion of, of context uh, as well. Right. That is uh, most interesting. And I think a lot of other people now do understand uh, this approach, whereas before it was uh, sort of sketchy and Bateson had the annoying, uh, when he was writing, not when he was speaking, but 
had the annoying habit of not citing some of his references, which means they either have to know them or that the subject itself appears in as, as if it were a unique uh, comment, where in fact it is a comment that he is making, making on, a, on a book or a segment of writing. But uh, his early expression of uh, information was uh, developed with his concept of logical typing, which is essentially making a distinction of a logical kind between types of uh, statement. I mean, this is following sort of standard set theory, and indeed he uh, he uh, discusses or aligns with uh, Bertrand Russell on this, who was the ma major mathematician developing uh, set theory in the, in the 1920s. And this was his form of making a, a distinction or separating bits that appeared to be confused um, with this logical distinction. Um, but as he went on, he realized that the logical distinction required his approach to uh, be centered on codes and coding was too rigorous uh, a, a box for what a particular set of communicative circumstances might represent. In other words, a code, of course, is, is, was used and still is used. There is a code biology, for example, is looked as, as, as um, a perfectly acceptable formulation. But coding in human terms, he felt, was too rigid classification. Besides which, he also came to understand that you couldn't have a single code. You must have a double coding in order to develop a notion of context. And the double coding is the coding of the digital and the coding of the uh, analog. And these two present different perspectives of what a coding form might be. So, in, of course, we know in genetics is highly digital, but he would say it's not completely digital. There are analog components there. Whereas when we are uh, speaking, as you and I are speaking, there are lots of associational forms going on and we're continually moving from associational form to associational form to associational form to, um, to get at a notion of meaning. Also, when we look at this series of analog, analog events, we develop a sense of expectancy and expectancy is related to context. So when we have a context of, of things, it is in the light of a set of preconditions, maybe by only by trial and error, but a set of preconditions that we are now expecting a particular outcome that is not going to be a surprise outcome, it's not going to be um, a, a chaotic outcome, is going to be in tune with consent, some sort of coordinated understanding that we have previously gained. 
And this he thought was true of the animal world as well as being true of the human world. But he found on, uh, in developing uh, this that he would have to abandon or modify his notion of logical typing. And he started looking around uh, at algebraic topology, um, particularly because algebraic topology um, tried to develop this scenario in uh, terms of nonlinear order, which was always the preferential order that Bateson uh, dealt with. And the reason why, one of the reasons why he rejected uh, for example, information theory, or which was a linear, a lit, which was predicated on a, let, uh, a set of linear events, and so in the nonlinear order, it was a matter of developing some notion of context being around recursive or nonlinear continuity of events that were carrying a message that we expected to reoccur. Again, I, in all our conversations, uh, you know, we, we don't have to be brilliant scientists to know that if we're meeting somebody new, we are going to start out with saying, how are you? Did you see the weather outside? Isn't it terrible? We don't want more of this. How's your family? And go on with the conversation like that. But all those repetitions, that recursive aspect is a prime aspect of carrying a conversation into an expectancy and the expectancy is the nature of context that we have judged for the interaction between two people and in this case um, you get the satisfaction of uh, developing not only uh, a reflection on the question that you are talking about but also a reflection on the feedback of the other person towards your expectancy. And this is semiotic interaction. And he had developed this, of course, earlier on with all his work um, on, uh, on communication and interviews, his practical work that he, he did when he was the Veterans Administration Hospital in, in Palo Alto. But in order to expand this, into the animal world and see how the animal responds to expectations or to surprise or to the interactions um, of expectancy, which uh, are sign-mediated interactions. This is, he needed another sort of uh, mathematics or some form of rule governed uh, sets of relationships in order to explore this uh, further. And so he began giving up logical typing. Thank you. Yeah. And so we're talking about signs. We're obviously into the language of semiotics, and that is a, a major feature of the book. And, a, and, a, and a, like as I've said before, a, a, a big part of the book's contribution is to make that link uh, between Bateson's work and and some current authors who very much do um, overtly cite Bateson and others who don't, but that their work is uh, clearly, um, there's there's links there. So can you then expand now, as you're saying, uh, Bateson's looking into the animal world. Can you take us on that, on that journey into understanding context in the animal world? And as we enter into the worlds of ecology and then directly into this notion of biosemiotics? 
Um, yes, well, the, the starting point of Bateson's uh, writing about this was the recognition of dualism in several sections of uh, uh, scholarly work. And the dualism had been set up previously, uh, and most people know about this, by Descartes and the mechanistic, uh, evolu uh, me mechanistic revolution that followed Descartes and a, a sort of machine uh, ideology. But the machine ideology it had the result of, of separation of what should be an integrated uh, issue, set of issues. And one of the integrated set of issues that um, Bateson uh, was intensely aware of was the issue, well, let's mention several of them, because I go into several of them in the book. But body-mind is one particular issue, and he was working on that uh, when he worked with Margaret Mead in Barley. And a second issue uh, was certainly uh, the issue of the animal world versus uh, the human world. And even before cybernetics, he came on to cybernetics. Even before that, he was... Um, very much aware of this dualistic uh, separation. And so you, you see examples of this uh, in just short passages concerned uh, in, in, his, in his writing, just short passages or in his letters and correspondence um, before uh, he actually goes into World War II. But subsequent to World War II, when he comes back um, and begins formally addressing the issues, he realized that the whole question of cybernetics that brought into being, which was the notion of feedback, was a big, big clue to the way in which there was an integration here to be uh, discussed. And uh, this integration meant how do you look at um, animal feedback in relationship to human feedback. What are the similarities and what are the differences? Of course, the main similarity is languaging, but this did not make, in his view, an enormous dis distinction in which human beings use language and uh, were cognitively superior through the use of language, and animals were just simply robotic in their interactions with other animals or ecology or the world at large. And the more that he grew into, into his understanding of this question of how it affected our own perceptions of ecology, the more he began to write in this. And his phrase, ecology of mind, emerged from this. He, it was as if uh, you have two, in his phrase, two uh, particular terms, ecology and mind, in which uh, ecology should become minded and the mind of, rep of an ecological representation should lead us back to the way in which we ourselves develop our, uh, our mental representation so the mind itself becomes an ecological form. And if we, if we can hold that conception of the relationship of the two, then our 
ecology would be completely different from the ecology that is uh, presented to the world at that time and even now, even despite an enormous amount of criticism of this, which ecology as a sort of compromise with uh, production or uh, some form of diminution or adaptation to the enormous changes that uh, humanity is uh, making to, to the global state of affairs with regard to uh, ecology. So uh, ecology of mind is really an outcome of uh, a new uh, semiotic understanding. And if I may sort of express uh, one thought here, he was adamant that in coming to this understanding, we have to let go of what so much of social science at his time and even now is concerned with, which is the notion of power. You cannot base a social science on this uh, notion of power because it will constantly lead you to a discussion of human control of nature. You must get out of that paradigm and develop a new sort of a paradigm, which is uh, aesthetic, which is an appreciation of form and where human beings fit in to a new appreciation of uh, uh, the formal relations which exist and come to understanding what those formal relations are. So he approaches it uh, from a formal perspective. This this might be a good moment to say a couple words about mind itself, particularly for those who might uh, those of our listeners who might be newer to the thought of Bateson. And you you do review, and I won't ask you to go through them all exhaustively. But Bateson's notion of mind, and he does you review the list that he lays out, I believe, in his book Mind and Nature of these criteria for what he's calling mind, because it's not uh, it certainly isn't the brain, right? No, it isn't the brain. Um, in fact, he. He stayed away from uh, using much of the normal cognitive expressions that referred to uh, brain abilities. Uh, and if you look closely at his work, you see that he did this quite deliberately. It's summed up really in an in approach, a very different approach to what neurophysiology takes or to what standard science takes as a, an achievement, which is the achievement of understanding consciousness. And Bateson was not interested in consciousness. He had, uh, and I don't think anybody is going to disagree with this, he had the idea that before we understood what consciousness was, to, <clears throat> we needed to understand what perception was. And perception precedes consciousness. Uh, it has its own little memory system, not, of course, the memory system of the uh, neural space that uh, we have, um, but uh, it has its own memory system and it has its own uh, perspective achievement, which is to get a, a clearer conception of the whole of something a gestalt, which is the German term for whole. And he directed nearly all his work towards this idea of enlarging our perception rather than enlarging um, 
uh, our consciousness of things. Um, the second thing that about uh, Bateson's notion is that you're quite correct. Consciousness, excuse me, mind does not simply mean the brain box. It means what occurs in interrelationship as a result of uh, a thought or an expectation. Anyway, a set of circumstances that are exterior. So you don't have mind as a brain box inside the body and then the external world impacting on the body. No, you have this constant uh, relationship and coordinating coordination of mind with a set of immediate circumstances, a set of relationships uh, that uh, are involved in the, the set of circumstances as constituting a larger version of mind. And this was the ecological version that he wanted to pursue. Yeah, and so that uh, even, you know, the behavior of the roots of trees, depending upon the conditions in the soil or the leaves, depending on the sun. And so this idea that this perception and it's and back to you know the the, the mantra of a, uh, information being a difference that makes a difference right and that there is some capacity in the organism to perceive difference that is meaningful to it again uh, inside a particular context and then it it adjusts and so you get these cybernetic loops uh, in in all kinds of life forms regardless of this notion of consciousness as yes well. that that is correct and this this is then linked to perception rather than to uh, rather than to cognition and to this uh, notion of consci consciousness um, the uh, the notion this uh, I, I mentioned this this cut it's called the epistemic cut this cut between uh, the animal world and uh, the uh, human world uh, that has existed in science and I think it's uh, it's incumbent on us to realize this has gone on this went on until there was a major declaration in 2012 it's called the De the, Cam the Cambridge Decla declaration on consciousness uh, that's Cambridge University UK Declaration on Consciousness, which a bunch of scientists finally said that it appears that in the national world, although plant forms do not have any neural central neural uh, cord such as animals have, that the plant world and the animal world nevertheless exhibit uh, sentience. Uh, they exhibit affectation, they exhibit um, uh, an ability to, do, to make decisions about things. Um, and we have to recognize this as fundamental to science. Now that's 2012, that's, that's uh, 30 years after Bateson wrote his book, Mind and Nature, A Necessary Unity, uh, which of course is the big is the big title uh, his 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 most his book that has been most admired anyway by science itself. Thirty years later, and this is what the this was what he was trying to explain in the book at that time. So uh, yeah, we we tend to be slow learners, don't we? And uh, the 
urgency with which we need to learn some of these things just continues to increase. Um, so, uh, can you now talk a little more directly about people like Jesper Hoffmeyer and the biosemioticians that have uh, really extended Bateson's work? And and this is a, a, again, you know, the, the 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 last section of the book where you you bring in some other authors like Hoffmeyer and and others, and you draw the connections between Bateson and biosemiotics, biosemantics, which has a, a a different sort of orientation but is is very much connected, and also a developmental systems theory. So, can you just tell us a little bit about how, I mean, thankfully through things like this Cambridge Declaration that you've mentioned, uh, Bateson's really um, important ideas have are still alive with us and being developed and carried forward, hopefully in a way that are going to get messages, important messages across uh, in, in, in time for us to, to do something about them. But can you say a little bit more about these different communities and how they've engaged with Bateson directly or indirectly and how they've extended and are carrying his work? Uh, yes, I, I think First of all, all science is always in uh, to point out all science was uh, is always a matter of oppositions and disagreements, and the disagreements with those people that you have mentioned um, probably began um, in developmental biology. The developmental biologists would de- which deal with morphogenesis, which deal with embryos and embryo formation, never really accepted the Darwinian story of adaptation, of mutation, of um, the idea that uh, it was only a matter of chance uh, in mutation, uh, in producing mutations, that change was made, that change uh, was a result largely of the external environment imposing itself on the internal environment through natural selection, and they disagreed. The jumps in, in, in when you had to look to the formal components of, of, of a body through morphogenesis just, just asked for much more than the Darwinian uh, answers. Uh, the trouble with the Darwinians is that uh, they were so convinced that they had the right arg- arg- arguments that their opposition to developmental biology was uh, considerable. And uh, they called themselves, uh, they called developmental biologists Lamarckists, which was a term that they rejected. And it's perfectly true, Lamarck made a mistake when he said that um, the attributes of the parents are repeated in behavioral attributes of the parents are repeated in the following generation. But he did, he said a lot of other things that um, uh, made sense about the relationship between the external world, the environment, and the internal world, and how change occurred uh, through that. So there was this problem uh, in the the science who went along with the developmental biologists is how do we get uh, our argument across in face of the of the what seemed to be this massive uh, block in understanding of the Darwinianists that the environment and in, that the external and the internal relations, the environmental relations and the internal relations um, need to be this interaction really needs to be defined uh, in 
terms other than, for example, natural selection, in terms other than mechanistic propositions. And uh, even though Lamarck got it wrong, the, the general idea that the uh, external and the internal had uh, connectivity with one another must be pursued. And the first sign of the break was um, not as a result of Bateson, but as a result of Bateson's great friend, who was Conrad Roddy Waddington. And he introduced the term epigenetics. And he, in fact, showed that this term had validity in his lab. And uh, Bateson went along with the idea of epigenetics, um, but he had a big argument with, uh, with, Con with Conrad Waddington, who was his great friend. In fact, if you have a look at the literature, it's very interesting. Uh, so far as Bateson is concerned, the only person he keeps on quoting over the years is Waddington and taking up Waddington's ideas. The only only author that is consistently quoted and whose ideas are taken up, Conrad Waddington. And Conrad Waddington writes books in which the chapter on Bateson is included on late thought. So they had this great relationship with one another, but they disagreed on, on other things, including epigenetics. And the disagreement was that uh, Waddington gave a, a, an approach to epigenetics through a single sort of uh, channel of variation, a sort of hills and valley variation uh, that uh, would occur with um, the, the genetic, the genes reaching a sort of plateau and then going down into a valley and reaching the plateau, going and at the top of the top of the plateau, there was uh, some form of diversification and then stability of the diversification occurred and so on and so forth. And Bateson said, you can't do this. There's too much going on. There's all these going to the top of the hill. And uh, if you live at the top of hills, you have to learn how to pant well and develop bigger lungs as a result, you know, like uh, those people who lived in, in, in Peru in the Andes. Uh, th there's that sort of adjustment, which is a, a daily sort of adjustment. And then there is a much more internal sort of uh, feedback loop uh, congruent with it that changes the whole specter of a, a bodily Sorry, inspector is the wrong word. Changes the the whole um, coordination of a a bodily form, and that is uh, a deeper. It's a paradigmatic shift as compared to um, uh, this uh, sort of adapt adaptive shift of of the body to a particular set of circumstances, and which is reversible because the paradigmatic shift ain't reversible. And Waddington said, that's bringing back dualism again, Bert Gregory. I don't accept it. My hills and valley type uh, notion of, of creod, that was the term that he gave to it, is perfectly acceptable and you're going to have to live with it. So they didn't speak for a while, but they made friends at the end again. And epigenetics uh, came in to, to being the fundamental break. So you not only have genes, but you have epigenetics, which is 
an aspect of the gene that changes according to many environmental circumstances, including behavioral circumstances, incidentally, as they've now discovered, but does not change necessarily the structure of the gene. Uh, so uh, epigenetics has led to uh, a realization that there are many forms that the body uh, that uh, uh, that the body responds to and responds to other aspects of the body. This is this is a sort of uh, hierarchy of of constituents. It, it isn't just simply mind and body. It's body in being involved in a number of circumstances. We can we can name them: genetics, epigenetics, uh, microbiota. These are three fundamental forms. Um, some say ecology is another form, a fourth form that you have to have to regard as uh, coordination. And they build up, uh, they exist and coordinate one with the other. So uh, we now move then to how do these forms coordinate one with the other? You mentioned earlier, uh, and perhaps you'd like to repeat the question because it's quite a long time ago, that the term of Bateson shifting um, from a notion of McCulloch's redundancy into a, a discussion of uh, difference. And I'd like to go back to that again in order to explain it. Perhaps... Yeah, please yeah, do. No, please give the question again. Mm -hmm. You're interested. Well, it was... Yeah, the, the, the change from redundancy to this idea of pattern was, I believe, what uh, the right. quotation that I was referring to. Right, yeah. okay. It's a redundancy into patterning. And what is, uh, first of all, what is redundancy? Well, redundancy, as McCulloch defined it, was uh, he, very important for computers. This is one case in which uh, those who are interested in meaning have borrowed from the computer analogy, but reject, uh, generally speaking, the what has developed from from this idea. And it has to do with McCulloch divining what uh, is the, the um, network of events uh, required in order to introduce a distributed computer network. And he said it had to involve uh, many memories in a computer network. Uh, you couldn't have just a single pattern of events directed in a hierarchical order, ordering from uh, bottom to top, nor could you have just multiple codes that were not coordinated. You had to have a distributed memory uh, network that was acting on uh, as, as uh, a record of, and a record and a <laughs> interpretation of events at, uh, uh, at every moment of time. And this was enormously helpful for the movement of computers those days from a sort of single hierarchical frame to a distributed frame. And 
the notion of coding underwent a fantastic change. The notion of coding was no longer in its uh, little boxes. We're now dealing with a system that was coding, if you like, for sets of interrelations in a network. And this is the big aspect of redundancy that McCulloch talked about. And this is what Bateson picked up. He said, yeah, this is it. He has discussed, as it were, the, um, the uh, he or he's given the descriptive image of what I'm talking about. Now we must have a look at, at the working interrelation, interrelational aspects that it introduces. And he says it's a pattern of differences and coordination within a pattern of differences and a building up of difference into similarities and similarities of difference and difference of similarities, which create, if you like, uh, little clusters of events which yield further differences in time in relationship to one another. Hooray, he says, at last I've got something to work on, which is an epistemological scheme that I can advance now. Does that make Wonderful. sense? Wonderful. Yes, absolutely. Um, thank you very much. We're, we're getting very short on time here. So I would like to ask you, um, you've been very generous with your time, and this book does so much. There's a great discussion of the double bind, which I know is, is one of Bateson's most written and commented about, but the work you do on the continuing misunderstandings about the double bind uh, and how that played out through some of the fallout amongst the Palo Alto research group, the shift from first to second order cybernetics within that work and the influence of Machran and Varela's autopoiesis. And there's so much rich stuff that I haven't come across before, even in the more sort of well-trod uh, areas of Bateson's thought that uh, we're just going to have to leave that for readers to uh, discover on their own, because I really do urge them to get their hands on this book. So can you close us out with telling us a little bit about what you're working on now? What uh, what kind of current projects have you got uh, in the works? <laughs> well, it's uh, I've just been to um, a, a biosemiotics conference in, in San Francisco, Um which was, uh, I, I have been on the uh, board of the Biosemiotics Journal since its start because I moved in right in at the start because uh, it was quite evident that Bateson was one of these, uh, pre one of the precursors um, that led to this uh, subject of biosemiotics. Most biosemiotics is uh, developed from uh, Charles Pierce rather than from Bateson, and has a combination of Jakob von Wurtzkill's notion of, um, of Umwelt uh, as being uh, central to the discussion. But Bateson, too, is Bateson's notions uh, of, of difference, too. And there's, uh, there is, in fact, a book uh, which on this uh, a legacy for living systems Gregory Bateson's precursor to biosemiotics, which examines uh, Bateson's um, contribution to biosemiotics. Uh, my own uh, attempt really has been to keep Bateson alive. Um, he didn't have all the answers. In many cases, he only prodded uh, the reader to investigate rather than giving answers. But he asks significant questions all the time, and it's the questions that people have picked up. 
And the same is true of uh, biosemiotics. Biosemiotics has uh, picked up many of Bates's questions and has pursued them uh, to the point that it can now begin to talk about uh, the ultimate dualism. Um, is there a case to be made in science that there is a match of physical particles to the semiotic molecule, because the molecule is definitely semiotic. If you want to know what cancer is about, you've got to take it and run with the fact that cancer cells evoke mm. their own little universe out of their general system of continuities and coordinations within the body and try to capture um, the body to make things comfortable for themselves through communication. That is the science of cancer at the moment. That is a semiotic approach to cancer. And you can get semiotic approaches to quantum theory. In fact, at this conference, we had people from NASA there who were saying, mm. we can't go on in quantum theory at the moment without taking a semiotic turn. We, are, we have a series of bipolar things which constantly we can't get over if we stick to the particle. There has to be some form of semiosis in there that mm. uh, will enable us to distinguish the local from the global, for example. This is one of the things they're greatly concerned about. And there are other divisions there that they feel they can't get over, they can't get, um, over a bipolar approach. So there's a whole suite from particle physics then to uh, biological uh, understanding uh, using uh, modern techniques to uh, the notion of communication as practiced in the social science, which is unrewardingly about discourse as a central component and only discourse as an aspect of communication when there's so much uh, more of this world of ours which is built on uh, communication and offers uh, scientists, students, anybody in philosophy, mm. you name it, offers a world in which uh, they can explore. And, you know, Bateson is, is a product. Um, I, I uh, have done some product and I see other people now doing prodding I never thought of and I'm happy. Well, we very much look forward to your future prodding because uh, having been sufficiently prodded by your book, it's got me thinking uh, a tremendous amount and I've really enjoyed uh, the time I've gotten to, to spend ch talking with a little bit here and very much look forward to your future contributions in this field and, uh, and all of your future work. We wish you all the best with it and thanks again for joining us here on New Books and Systems and Cybernetics, a channel of the New Books Network. Thanks again. Well, thank you very much for your patience. I'm afraid I'm very long with it. <laughs> well, there's a lot to talk about, and uh, we've only scratched the surface, so I look forward to talking to you again sometime soon. Thanks very much. <laughs>